Welcome to the Spinster Life Podcast. I'm Amy, and today I am joined by Amay Ludkin, author of The Lonely Hunter, an amazing memoir about her time as a single woman. Welcome, Amay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I am too. Let me just tell you, I devoured this book. I identified so much with the book. I saw myself in these pages, and I, it also made me jealous that you are able to put into words all of the things that I've been thinking in such an eloquent manner. And uh, I think this is just, this is a really, really important book. And I'm so excited to have you here to discuss more about it. I've highlighted so much of the book. It's, there are some chapters where there's more yellow than there is, um, <laughs> than there is white space left. Just because I was like, yes, this is everything and I need, I'm going to need to consult this book more frequently. Oh, that's so generous. What a lovely introduction. Thank you for reading it and for being interested in it. And I don't know that I should be someone anyone would feel jealous of, but I do think <laughs> that, um, you know, any writing in that book, it's built off many, many, many people who've had a similar experience. And I think we're just sort of reaching a cultural culmination where everyone's like discussing it all at once because of COVID, because of this epidemic of loneliness people talk about. And so it's just become a much like more important subject all of a sudden. And I'm lucky to be here at this moment to write about it. You are sort of a pioneer because there just are not a lot of people writing in this space. I think that's like such a lovely thing to say. And I want to be like, yes, I am a pioneer. But <laughs> because I just wrote this book about loneliness, I've been contacted by a lot of other people who are sort of writing on a similar subject from different perspectives and with different like levels of research. Some are focused on dating apps. Some are focused on trying to have a life without kids. One woman wrote to me that she wrote a book about being single and having a dog. So I do think people are writing about it a lot right now. <laughs> and maybe you're only aware of that stuff when it's like you just wrote a book and suddenly everyone's like, oh, my book's on a similar topic. I want to share with you. I want to talk to you about it. I don't think I was as aware, even though I was writing this book, until it came out and everyone started reaching out. Tell us a little bit more about how the book came to be. Well, I'm a blogger. I've been blogging for, I don't know, since I was in my early 30s. And I uh, had a job at Jezebel and they asked me if I wanted to write a story kind of summing up my year. This was like, I think the end of 2016. And I had recently gone to a dinner party where I was with friends who I was pretty close to and felt very comfortable with, but they were all in relationships. And when they asked me about my love life, I kind of admitted I hadn't dated anyone at that point in six years. And I wasn't sure I would ever start dating anybody again. Like it really felt like something that wasn't gonna happen for me. And the reaction to it was really intense in a way that I didn't quite understand at the time. I felt like they were almost annoyed or angry with me for saying this. And I think there is this like mythology that everybody is entitled or destined for some sort of romance. Like it'll happen no matter what if you're like a kind of normal, reasonably attractive person, <laughs> you are going to find love. And I just think logically that's not true. Like love is very random in a way. It's like about being in the right place at the right time with the right person. I think we're all capable of loving and being loved by many people, but it just doesn't always align. So after that conversation, I was kind of like haunted by it. I felt like, okay, well maybe there is something wrong with me. And if I just get with the program, I'll be rewarded by the relationship. But I wrote this piece for Jezebel about the conversation and it was called, when can I say I'll be alone forever? Like you're not allowed to ever admit that you've stopped looking or that you don't think you're gonna have a relationship. You always have to like kind of be pretending to be reaching for something better than what you already have if you're single. And I got such a response from it. Like so many people wrote to me and were like, I actually have gone through the same thing. I've been single for years. I have a lot of trouble meeting anybody. Like there are all sorts of different reasons why people were single or isolated. And so that sort of just opened up the topic to me a lot. and. 
<laughs> it escalated from there. Yeah, it really, it really does sound like it escalated. They say never read the comments, but you did read the comments and a lot of them were positive. But I've noticed that a lot too with, with my work, that there are a lot of people who want to reach out and they want to talk about their experience. But then there are the trolls. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about um, what the trolls said? Because I feel like in a way, it's not that like you reacted to it, but like y you started thinking about dating and about your personal life in a different way because of some of this fallout. Yeah, I got a lot of response from people, like I said, that was positive or that sympathized. But I definitely got a lot of messages from people who were saying, oh, you should change this and that about yourself. You sound really negative. You know, maybe if you were more physically attractive, um, mm. maybe if you just like got in the right headspace, whatever. And it definitely had an influence on me. I mean, I've been writing for the internet for a long time, so I'm used to people being nasty, but it was like such a scale and it was about something so personal. So I think it had an influence on me and I reached this point early in the following year where I was like, okay, you know what? Everyone's saying that I am the problem. So I'm gonna make myself engage again. And I made a resolution that I would go on a date two days a week, every week for the duration of the summer pretty much was the limit I set for myself. So I started making myself go on all these dates to see if I just hadn't been trying hard enough. And I made all these changes to myself. I worked out a lot. I ate really well, I lost some weight which is so ridiculous because obviously people of all bodies and sizes fall in love all the time. But I felt like, okay, well, that's what they said was wrong. So <laughs> that's what I'll do. <laughs> I kind of was like trying to prove to people, like you can do everything that you're supposed to do to self-actualize, to improve, to learn to love yourself. But there is a huge gap in connection between people that is not really about you being the best person you can be. It's about societal structures in general. Yeah, I, and you went into that a lot of how like this whole narrative, and it's not completely negative and it's not completely positive about bettering yourself and about like how you know you need to work to be, and I think you put it this way in the book, worthy of love or deserving of love and how ridiculous that can be and how many relationships look happy from the outside. But that's not the case at all. It's just two really codependent people who are feeding each other's negative, codependent and dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, love is considered this with the ultimate positive feeling, right? It's this amazing experience to be in love and to be loved. And so it's an attached to like, positive qualities in people is that you have to be a good person to be in a relationship when that's obviously not true. That's obviously and, not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I think that a healthy relationship requires two people who are self-reflective, compassionate, thoughtful, considerate. But plenty of relationships we see are about people, yeah, who are codependent, who are settling for somebody who treats them poorly, who are in desperate circumstances, who are economically compelled to be in the relationship. So it's nonsense to tell somebody that the only reason that they aren't in a relationship is because they haven't like achieved some like status as a human being, you know? Right. They, they just haven't made it to being a part the of a couple <laughs> Yeah. Nirvana, well. and, and that if you're not there yet, you're also not a whole person because the only way yeah. that you can be whole is to be part of a couple and all of these kind of just weird ways that we think about being in the world. Yeah, I think with with the self-improvement thing in particular, there's that like message about how do you love other people if you can't love yourself? But it still attaches the idea of loving yourself as a thing that is externally rewarded eventually. That if you love yourself well enough, it will be reflected right. in how you look. It will be reflected in how you carry yourself. And so you'll finally be told you're good enough to be loved by another person as well. And 
I don't think that's like people's necessarily their intention when they say that phrase or that idea, but it just like has become so interwoven with like the wellness and self-care industry that it's really hard to escape. It's not a negative thing. And I think it's it was interesting for you to undertake that experiment. You talked a lot about like how people treated you differently and how immediately they were like, oh my God, you look amazing. Yeah, and, I and think it was a funny thing because I mean, so I lost like maybe 10 pounds in the first two or three months of 2017. I was working out, I was eating well, I wasn't doing anything unhealthy or whatever, but it, you know, diet culture is inherently disordered eating. So it wasn't like a great choice I was making necessarily, but I lost some weight, got a haircut. I had more money that year. I was making a lot of money and indulging in new clothes and makeup and whatever. And that's fine. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I started to get a response from people where they were saying I was like giving off a different energy. My vibe had changed, but really it was just my physical appearance. <laughs> I yeah. was getting treated better. And a thing that people don't say a lot is that you know, you're treated better if you look more conventionally attractive and that makes you feel better because it feels better to be treated better. But that doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. mean it's like actually uh, saying anything significant about who you are in the end. And it didn't mean that you had any more or less to offer anymore no. based on, on how you looked at that current time in your life. And physical beauty, it is very fleeting. It can be taken away from you in an instant. And, yeah. and it also fluctuates throughout your life. I mean, there are times yeah. when you just don't have the energy or the resources to be working out or like eating whole foods or cooking for ourselves at home all the time. That's not always accessible. And you know, with age, inevitably it gets harder. The way people were treating me, the fact that it changed based on my physical appearance, it really gave me the thought that maybe being in a relationship would feel good because people would start treating me better as well. They treat me like I was normal, like I was a part of society in a normal way that I had been like validated and signed off on as as okay because I was in a relationship. So would it feel good because I was in a relationship or would it feel good because I was being treated better as a person in society? Yeah. It felt like a parallel to me. <laughs> I think that like validating your existence by someone quote unquote choosing you, it's not a healthy way to live in the world. It's not a healthy way to view anything. And I, I, I lived like my 20s and my 30s kind of uh, doing your experiment of going on like a lot of dates. I don't think okay. I had a set date quota in mind because it was just any date that I could go on. Yeah. And my goal was to get married or get a boyfriend or be in a relationship. Uh, I did not approach it from the uh, intellectual point of view that you <laughs> addressed it from. I definitely felt like I didn't exist in between these like micro relationships and that I did not question until I was much, much older. <laughs> and much, much wiser. Well, it's hard because, you know, I can step back and say this is wrong. I deserve better. Single people should be treated as well as people who are in couples. But the reality of being in love and being loved is very exciting and thrilling and fun. So, of course, if you've had that experience, you want it. Like, you want it back. Or if you never had it, you want to try it. Like, right. it's a real human need. It, and I don't disparage that at all. Absolutely. It, it absolutely is a need. But it is so funny that romantic relationships are like a they're like a drug high they are and they are really influenced by chemicals in your brain like that's straight up the truth and yeah <laughs> that doesn't mean i don't think that means they're fake but i think no. they also have to be you know sometimes you're just like desperate to see someone you're obsessing over them and scientists have run experiments that show like people who are in the middle of an infatuation are exhibiting the same kind of imbalances as somebody who has like obsessive compulsive disorder or 
is doing cocaine. Like it's just, it's, it's almost out of your control to a certain extent. It requires a lot of self-reflection, internalized investigation to escape. And it's very hard. It, it sometimes just takes yeah. time. You know, that's why yeah. they say time heals all wounds. <laughs> <laughs> and all highs it is it's all so highs. super fun but it is just not a sustainable feeling to have so you do just have to have a little bit more emotional intelligence behind your view of relationships to not make yourself keep chasing that high yeah because a lot of the high is attached to drama i think we're more inclined to be really really obsessed with somebody if we can't quite have them and that's why it seems like the people who are the most alluring are the ones we can never really be with yes and you wrote about that in your book one particular yeah. relationship that you had with one person and all of those feelings like you got to have that like romantic high and feeling all of these things but he definitely was not someone who was available to you yeah. and yeah and absolutely i was uh totally in love with somebody it's like a big part of the book is that i you know i went on all these dates and then towards the end of my experiment i met somebody and i fell totally in love with them but we didn't really have a real relationship and there it wasn't really possible for us to be together and I didn't necessarily have the recent experience and understanding to recognize that right away. And so I just kind of kept getting myself more and more involved with this person who was like indicating in every way that they were never gonna be <laughs> with me. Um, but the emotions that it caused, they were part of my brain chemicals. They were part of me physically. And it was, it took a long time to get over it. Yeah, and I think you had a lot more, I mean, I know you were writing about it, but just from your writing, it did feel like you did have a lot of insight into this and that you had an idea of what was going on. It wasn't maybe something that you wanted to admit, but you still allowed yourself to feel those feelings anyway. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could say that I allowed myself. I felt more compelled for sure. I mean, now I'm not in love <laughs> with this person anymore. Like I've had enough time and distance from a situation where those feelings are gone, but I can see myself and how hopeful I was not only to get to be with this person, but to finally have a, a fulfilled love story that I've been told I would have. And it didn't happen. And so that's like the disappointment of not being with the person I was in love with and also the disappointment of not having the love story. And I think what you wrote about the falling out of love process was really valuable and more people should definitely read this just as a way to handle yourself as this process is going on. Because, you know, you described it, it's not all at once. You're never going to get over someone all at once. There were starts and stops and you would see him around occasionally. And then you'd kind of start to spiral a little bit and you'd, you'd think about it. You'd talk to your friends and, and you would get over it until eventually, like, the feeling just faded. And you continued to see him around town, but just that chemical hit, that, that high, it, you didn't feel it anymore. Yeah, speaking of chemical hits, I mean, a breakup <laughs> is a, a form of grief, right? And we grieve all sorts of things in a breakup, like the loss of the person and also the loss of a dream of a person, the loss of an opportunity or hope for the future. And processing grief can be a really long experience. It can take a while and you go back and forth. I mean, they talk about the five stages of grief and it's kind of like a complicated idea that people have really simplified, but it's like you walk, you don't go through them in a linear fashion. You, know, you go through different moments of depression, anger, bargaining, and acceptance can come and then go away again too. Right, which it did for you a couple of times. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely. I feel like you did handle it in like a very mature way, in a very balanced way that I'm sure it didn't feel like it in the moment, but no, in your writing, <laughs> in your writing you. it does come across as something you were able to handle. 
I think for me, I will always feel very deeply about someone when I like them because it doesn't come along that often. So it feels extremely special. And I think that I used to be kind of embarrassed about that where I would say, oh, it's pathetic. It's sad that you don't get over these people, especially when they're so clear about not wanting you. And I'm just like, you know, it's okay to feel whatever you feel as long as you're not reactive in your feelings, as long as you're still good to yourself and good to the other people around you. Let it take however long it takes and still like engage with the world and try to do healthy stuff, but don't give yourself a hard time about it. Yeah. And you talked a little bit too about in that period of uh, a fr another friend had said that th they'd gotten over a breakup by just saying they chose to be nice to themselves that day. And you mm -hmm. kind of took that and ran with that and revisited the previous stage that you'd gone through taking better care of yourself and explored self-care and, and learned about yourself from that experience. For me, it was definitely the difference between, you know, self-care as a way to transform myself and self-care being nice to yourself as a way to like engage with life and enjoy life in the way that it's accessible to you right now, instead of like for some future idea you have about who you should be. Yeah. So my friend had told me that he was getting over a breakup and he was just like so frustrated. He was so tired of the situation and he just decided to be really nice to himself and to take a day to just do what he wanted to do and not really care what anyone else thought about it. And he happened to meet the woman who became his wife. <laughs> and so it was like kind of an annoying story because I think when you're single, you hear from your friends who are coupled a lot or who will like tell you. Yeah. You know, it happened when I least expected it. I would totally given up looking, blah, 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 blah. So it's like, I don't really want to hear that stuff a lot of the time. But the way he told it, I think what was inspiring about it to me wasn't that he met this woman, even though they have a lovely relationship and I really like her. It was more that like he had decided he was not engaging with this relationship thing anymore. He was not looking for somebody else. He was just like being present with himself and trying to make that self as feel as rich and full of life as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that's something that I've kind of learned over my journey of going from someone who dated like it was their job to someone who was like their job was working on themselves. The romantic love is is fun and the the fuzzy butterflies are amazing and and all of those feelings are are wonderful but like i said they're not sustainable and then i've discovered all of these other feelings about like doing my own projects and and this kind of like longer term form of love that's not so intense but it's just so much more sustainable and i think it's more long lasting and it's not so volatile either yeah and i think a lot of people who end up in relationships sort of fall into this trap where they become so dependent on the relationship as a like form of validation, they just stop kind of developing themselves. They let go of other types of relationships. And that's not all on them. It also has to do with how society is structured and how it discourages other types of connections and puts so much emphasis on romantic relationships. But I think anyone can discover like the joy of investing in projects and things that are meaningful to you outside of, you know, romantic relationships. Yeah. I did want to talk about how romantic love and how marriage and dating has changed over the years, like in, in fairly recent history, actually. Do you want to tell us a little more about that? Definitely. There's a lot of interesting books on the subject. One of the big ones, Stephanie Kuntz wrote a book called Marriage and History, and it's sort of about, she. I think the subtitle is like How Love Conquered Marriage. And she sort of talks about how like the legalities of marriage have changed so dramatically that the only way to kind of keep people engaging with it was to make it as so important to their identity. 
And by that, I mean the romantic identity, the validation of them from romance. But it used to be much more uh, clearly an economical or community-oriented decision, right? And as soon as it became basically, like, I mean, the rule of coverture made women into non-entities. Like, you just didn't have an identity outside of your marriage. But as those laws began to change, a woman could live on her own. She did not have to be part of a marriage, and she could leave a marriage. So that kind of, like, made... A lot of people start scrambling for a reason to compel women into marriage. And it became romance. And it's very interesting to read about that progression because it's so obvious, you know, seeing it all laid out in black and white like that. The other thing was Maura Weigel wrote a book, Labor of Love, I believe. And it's sort of about how dating changed from being this thing where, you know, a young woman mostly would be at a home and a man would come calling, invited by her family. And like the richer you were, the more likely there were going to be a lot of people involved in this decision. But as more people moved away from home, it became this thing where men would ask girls to go out and they would usually pay for stuff because women made less money. So it was sort of understood that it was like they would be treated to go to the movies or carnival, whatever. But this was very scandalous at the time. They even like had vice squads who kind of persecuted these daters and um, implied that there was like an escort situation happening. And maybe that was true in some cases, but a lot of them were just dating. But there's this like very reactive response to older, from older generations because it just sort of made it very clear that there's an economic imperative to be married if you were a woman. <laughs> you needed, yeah. you know, you needed the money of these people who are making so much more than you. So it was very interesting to see that, you know, I think we have this idea that dating's always kind of been the same. Falling in love has always been a really important part of marriage, which is not true. Uh, it's Yeah, it's not. It's so interesting that, like, some obviously amazing things have come out of changing marriage and changing women's rights. I mean, obviously, you know, not being <laughs> yeah, a I'm person. On board with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm on board with that. Like, not being a person is not something that I want to be. I'd like to be a person. I'd like to have yeah. control over my own money. But then the negative side of this is that because people did need to still have this control over women, that they change who your support system is before. Yeah, I think like a great example of what a, it's like a marketing thing almost. Like they've now marketed marriage to be about like longstanding love and loyalty. So you'll be like, back in our day, our grandparents stayed together for 60, 70 years. That was real love. And it's like, you know, she wasn't allowed to have a credit card in her name. There's a reason that they stayed married that long. She would have faced intense social censure had she left that marriage. She would have been ostracized. She might have not been able to see her kids. Like, that is not a story about love. That's a story about coercion and, you know, obligation. And maybe there was love there. Who knows? But I just think, like, we're always comparing ourselves to a situation and saying that that situation was about romantic love when it was really not. And so it's like making people now feel like, oh, well, I want to live up to this standard of true love. But it's like a rebranding of what happened. Yeah. The way that friendship has shifted and like the role of your romantic partner is like the pinnacle. And before it wasn't like that, before it was so much more common to still have these friend groups. And then as marriage became this sort of central thing to being an adult, that it became juvenile to have really deep, intense relationships with people of the same sex. Yeah. And people were, you know, getting married a lot earlier in the mid-1900s, early 1900s than they had been before because of this as well. So, yeah, relationships between friends were really discouraged and they were seen as deviant if they were between like the same sex and obviously, like, opposite-sex relationships were fraught, too, then you couldn't really have that if you're a young yeah. person and unmarried. 
And then, you know, relationships with family. Like, there are, of course, overbearing mother-in-laws in the world, but I think that became more of a trope <laughs> at a certain point to kind of, like, discourage having family still involved with your life if you were married. Right. Yeah, to make it, to keep it this, like, unit instead of having this broader support system. You do talk a lot about, you know, how one person can't be your everything. No, I think Esther Perel is, like, a great person to read about this sort of stuff. But she sort of just says... You know, we expect at this point for our married partner to be our best friend, our lover, our roommate, and the person who we co-parent with. Like, that's just too much to ask one person to be everything to you. And also, we live a hell of a lot longer than we used to. So it's not <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's been many, many years of this really unsustainable partnership. And that doesn't mean nobody's capable of it. I definitely think. People can do it, but it's like, why is that the demand? I don't think it has to be, and I right. don't think it's the most healthy way to. Yeah, why is that the default? When yeah. I think that a lot more people operate on more of a, you know, like a like a time limit. You know, some people meet their person. It's usually in like college, and then they're together forever, and there's no question of that. But I think other people, they meet someone, they have a romance, it runs its course, and if you put marriage in there, then a relationship is not allowed to just run its course naturally. You have to fight for it and hold on to it and work on it and beat it into the ground until, you know, either you get through it and you just accept it and you spend the next 50 years married to this person or you get divorced. I've never been married. I've never had a relationship last longer than two years, three, two and a half years. So I feel like I can't even really comment on what it's like to try and keep a marriage together for decades. I... You know, my grandparents were together for, I think, 55 years before my grandmother passed away. And they went through some really hard times. And I believe in the sincerity of their love for one another. And I could see that it was a lot of work. And I don't want to disparage work in relationships because it is a choice, right? Like, you have to choose commitment. You have to choose meeting somebody halfway. It, it is going to be work if you want a long-standing relationship. But I agree with you where I think people are putting in the work sometimes, not because of how much they value that relationship but because they are afraid to fail publicly or to yes. be alone or to like think they might never get to be with somebody again instead of saying well you know what i was married to this person for 15 years that's an amazing thing that relationship is incredible and now it's over <laughs> and i right. need to do something else i think that's okay especially if you're gonna live to be almost 100 years old <laughs> like there's, right. there's a lot of <laughs> There's a lot of different ways to live and you might get to experience different ways to live in one lifetime. Right. There's other chances for romance. There's other dynamics that you can experience. Like it's not, like you said, I, I totally, I don't think it's a bad thing to work on a relationship as long as you value that relationship. But the second it, it you know, stops if it's making you meeting. miserable, if it feels like it's draining your life, if there's, if neither one of you is communicating, if one person is doing all the work and the other isn't like that. That isn't something you have to keep holding on to. I think there's a sunken cost fallacy of like, well, I've been with this person 10 years and yeah, I'm miserable every single day, but I, I would right, be throwing away 10, 10 years. years. <laughs> and so I'm going to put in another 20 years of this thing I hate. Like, you right. don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not fair to the other person. That sort of reminds me of just, again, like the being alone forever. Let's circle back to that. Just because that that statement or being able to ask that question, when can I say I'll be alone forever? That terrifies people in relationships. Yeah, because I think that they fear the loss of their own relationship. So even if they're not necessarily thinking about it in that way, when they react, it's, I think, in their 
you know, subconscious mind that they could lose their relationship. And that's the pain of and fear of losing that person, but it's also the fear of being excluded from this world that you finally be accepted into. And also missing out on all these social safety nets or economic safety nets that are built into having a partner that you don't have when you're single, especially as you age, if you don't have any kids or any caretakers, like you're in a much more precarious position. So I think people get freaked out about that because they want to feel like not only is love, you know, destiny, it's going to keep them safe. This, like, right. Does not. It it does like I, I do remember that feeling like the worst thing that could possibly happen to me if you if I'm alone forever if I die alone that's the absolute worst thing that could happen to me and I need to avoid that at all costs and some of it was worry about the things you were talking about about the financial part of it I'm an introvert like having someone to hang out with that I can stand who lives in the same space would have would uh, sometimes be a really nice thing to not have to like go out to get my social mm-hmm. needs met. Um, but putting this pressure on having this relationship, it just, it really is damaging. I think both to couples and to single people. Like you're saying as an introvert, it'd be nice to have somebody at home. I do think that there are people who are like, this, this situation suits me. I only talk to my partner, they're my buddy. I don't need anybody else. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like shame admitting that they need something else, that they need other types of relationships to feel fulfilled and loved uh, because it sort of like implies something negative about the relationship they have with their partner. Right. That it's not that they're not the one, like literally the one person who can. The one person who can fulfill every need I've ever had for social stimulation and connection. Uh, I think that there is like a big movement to people being non-monogamous or polyamory. And I think that's because in a way people are more comfortable admitting that, you know, our sexual needs fluctuate, that sometimes we are attracted to other people. That's a more common idea that we almost disassociate, separate from love. But very few people want to admit, oh, I need different types of love to feel fulfilled. Like my partner actually can't do all the romantic love that I need. <laughs> right. And, and uh, just start marketing this as a normal thing and just acknowledge that we're part of a society. And part of that yeah. also means that like, we need more than one person. We all need more than one person for the different facets of our life and the different facets of our personality. We definitely do. And we also need to like know that if we don't find those things, we still are not going to be abandoned in a ditch when we're old. (laughs) Like people should not be getting married and having kids because they're scared of the future, even though I do think that is the reality for a substantial number of people. I think so. One of the bad things that I've discovered, (laughs) but also kind of a relief in a way, is that most people die alone. It doesn't matter if you have kids or not, like, or if you have a partner or not, you're probably going to die by yourself. That's an unfortunate statistic (laughs) but it's true so it's like if that's the only reason you're having a child stop don't do it that's a bad and very costly retirement plan like yes (laughs) it is yeah there's just a lot of things that we expect the family unit to, to take care of and protect people from especially as they age that really should be the responsibility of an organized government and social safety nets and you discuss that at length too. Our government is not set up to handle single people. The government is set up to optimize relationships and the laws and and tax codes have really made it so that being in a relationship is rewarded or especially being in a marriage is rewarded and single people are left out or I guess at worst punished for staying single. Yeah, if you are, you know, as a single person who doesn't have a kid, clearly I have less expenses because I'm only taking care of myself. 
However, I never split the rent with anybody. I'm responsible for all of my healthcare costs. I don't have an, somebody to help me if I get sick or if I need like in-home care of any kind. I don't get any tax breaks for the situation. If I were to be in a partnership and we separated after a large amount of time, if we were never married, the protection of our assets would be really complicated. So it's like, there's a lot of things in, in this law and in social structures that protect people once they like participate in this system of marrying and having children. So it's an incentive, right? I mean, we're being given this cultural incentive to get married and have kids. I think that's kind of weird. <laughs> what would it mean if we divorced all, and I'm not even suggesting this because I obviously like it would create an immediate danger for all sorts of people. But what if we did divorce all benefits social benefits for marriage and became just like a religious ceremony, let's say, and had no, uh, uh, you know, connection to legalities yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, like, I think you quoted Bella DePaula. One thing that we could really easily do is we could give all employed people time off to take care of anyone, not just an immediate family member or a spouse, but to anyone like your chosen family, someone that you're really close to and functions as your family. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of places that have begun to uh, implement laws or policies that I really think are inspired largely by the LGBTQ community and their like less traditional family structures. Because one of the things about single people is they come from all sorts of different demographics. So it's quite hard to like organize them around specific changes in local laws or policies. But this is a group that does have like a distinctive thing, which is like a, a chosen family, like people who are not necessarily related to you by blood, but with whom you share life and care. So there are definitely places where they give you time off, where they pay you a stipend for caring for your chosen family, where your chosen family is legally recognized. Like that's a big thing. It's like, are, is your relationship legally recognized? Yeah. <laughs> and um, marriage is like the primary way that a relationship is legally recognized outside of maybe, I guess, parenthood. But, you know, they're kind of wrapped up in each other. Right. And I, yeah, that just seems just weird. The just vast experience of humans and that you're boiling down the connections, the legal connections to people that provide all of these safety nets and then provide some stability in your life are boiled down to basically two legal designations, spouse or parent. Yeah, that's really weird. It's really weird. <laughs> but we just kind of accept it as normal and yeah. don't investigate other ways of living as much as we should. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about loneliness. You start off the book talking about the loneliness epidemic, and then you break down and, and dive deeper into the loneliness, quote unquote, epidemic than even like governments have done. Like the UK government, they declared an actual loneliness epidemic and they devoted resources to it. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about like why that's misguided? I think it's great that loneliness is being acknowledged as a social ill, but the fact that it's called an ill, and I even use that word, and the word epidemic is used, first of all, it's the implication that, you know, loneliness is catching, which kind of is a way of ostracizing and stigmatizing loneliness and lonely people. The other thing is a lot of investigations into loneliness or reports, they're really describing the effects of poverty, of disenfranchisement, of uh, broken communities. So it's not so much that they're talking about loneliness, they're talking about like real systemic issues in society that are destroying people's lives. So they'll then be like, oh, it's so sad, people feel lonely. Like that is not actually what's happening. <laughs> like people's lives are right. being made miserable by the structures they live under. Right, and instead of addressing those issues, 
at least the, the British government is just addressing the, the, the symptom, the loneliness. I think that they have a variety of programs. I'm not familiar with all of them, but yeah, some of them are kind of like connecting older people to younger people, which is a nice idea. Like I think the idea of having a more integrated society around age is really important because we have a tendency in Western culture to just shove the elderly into these isolated communities and completely disconnect for them. So it's like not all bad, but I think there is a real resistance to saying, oh, well, maybe people are really lonely in the U.S. because they don't have health care and they're homebound and they have nobody to help them and they're like being destroyed by medical bills. Because then what would we have to change? It wouldn't be right. loneliness. We'd have to change. It'd be universal health care. So right. like, that is why it's kind of, you know, couched in this language. It's that that personal responsibility. It takes the onus off the government or any yes. other institutions to help people and puts all of that responsibility on people, yes. the individuals who are obviously, there are reasons that they are, you know, not able to, like you said, there's medical bills, there's disability, there's age, there's, you know, all of these underlying causes that are causing loneliness or causing people to withdraw. And like right. you're saying that you just need to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out of this funk and go and, and not be lonely anymore. Right. And when you hear the word epidemic, like what's another thing we call an epidemic here in the U.S.? The obesity epidemic or the opioid epidemic. I think the opioid epidemic is treated more seriously because it's killing like so many white people. And like so it's being right. elevated as a, as a serious thing for racist reasons. But it is obviously a very serious thing as well. But I think the obesity epidemic, you know, that language is old. It's been around a while. And I think there is so much stigma around weight and so much emphasis on personal responsibility. So when I heard it being called loneliness epidemic, I was like, oh, it's going to be another thing where, yeah, you have to work on yourself. You need to get out there. You need to find ways to connect. And that is not always a possibility for everybody. Yeah, it's just not. And I think we need to come to terms with that and find another way to talk about this. Yeah. And also conflating being alone with being lonely. But yeah, they're not the same things. I mean, Bella DePaula talks about this a lot, how we like call single people and lonely people as like interchangeable words. They're not really the same thing. Yeah. Is anybody can feel lonely at any time. It's like a very natural feeling. It comes and goes. Chronic loneliness is when you begin to have a kind of debilitating reaction to the world, like depression or anxiety. It's like kind of intertwined with that. So yeah, it can be something that can be treated, but usually through therapy, not just through like drugs or any other kind of medical intervention. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm rarely lonely. And part of that is because I'm an introvert and I just have the tools to deal with being alone and thrive being alone under certain conditions. But just to, yeah, take take that away. Take that conflation away. Take also away like employers giving uh, single people undesirable assignments because single people don't have anything going on or they don't have anybody to take care of. And just, you know, assuming these things about single people. Mm -hmm. And just making yeah. it more fair for everybody. Yeah, more fair and just like less of this, you know, I think one of the pressures I've often felt as a single person, it's like I either have to insist that I'm happy all the time and it's great, or I have to say I'm looking for someone. I hate being single. I can't wait to, wait to stop and be in a couple finally. Like you're not allowed to say, hey, you know, I'm single. And sometimes it is sucky. I wish I was with somebody. But a lot of time... I feel good about it. And most of the time, I don't think about it at all because I'm just a person living their life. You know, it's not it's not me being in a constant state of loneliness. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Just, I don't 
I mean, I guess I think about it more because I write about it and I create content right. about being single. But like I, I, before I really started doing this, I didn't think about being single. It just it was I was single. Mm -hmm. And just yeah. right. Just living my life. And it just it was it's a neutral. Yeah, it's a neutral. Subject or it should be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about the dating apps. Oh, sure. Before we wrap up, you are in the comedy world and you're mostly sketch and improv, but I'm sure that you know some stand-up comedians and every stand-up comedian in their act, if they're single, they have a bit about how much dating sucks and how much the dating apps suck. And um, you don't agree with that. I don't agree with that either. Um, you know, I have complicated feelings about dating apps. I don't think that dating apps necessarily have made dating worse. I think dating's always been difficult, but I think the volume of people we can meet and have bad interactions with is wildly increased <laughs> with dating apps. Like it's just, there's yeah. just like way more people for you to immediately have a weird ass reaction with or interaction <laughs> with online. Whereas before it was quite hard to find people who were single and know they were single. You know what I mean? Now the more issue is more like, okay, I know all these people are single, so they say on the dating app. Right. But I don't know that they are going to be compatible with me. And I'm like, I think it can be very exhausting to go through so many people who are not compatible with you to find one that is. Right. So I think that gets people really down. I would also say the negative thing about dating apps is they're designed by people. Um, the people who design them are the tech industry, the tech industry is like uh, infamously skewed to be really heavily white cis men. It's like going yeah. to be skewed to their to their um, perception of the world. So a lot of dating apps are, you know, really bad places for anybody who isn't, you know, fitting in this mold. Right. Right. And then the other thing is that they're designed to be addictive they don't really want you to get off them you know they're like games they are constantly sending you little note notifications dopamine hits asking if you want to spend some money it's like you're not really looking for a partner because to find a partner requires focus it requires a tolerance for discomfort it requires like time and energy and many people are too exhausted for any of those things so i kind of understand why dating apps have taken such a hard <laughs> hold but i also think they I also think they encourage like the worst impulses of us, which is like, I want to find someone who's easy. I want to find like somebody who never demands anything from me. Um, I just want to keep swiping and having like these shallow interactions because like that's quick and fun and it's a game. So it's going to lead to a lot of shallow relationships or connections or one night stands or whatever. Right. I don't, I'm not even getting down on one night stands, but I think what you really want is a relationship. It's not the right process i think for something deeply meaningful unless you're super committed to get to know the person you match with yes and i think too if you're willing to meet a lot of people and spend a yeah. lot of time invested in this yeah yeah definitely well that was just definitely a much more nuanced take on uh <laughs> on the ills of dating <laughs> apps than most stand-up comedians so <laughs> well it's not that funny that's why uh, i mean I <laughs> You know, there are plenty of like weird stories and like funny things that have happened to me from meeting people on dating apps. I've had lots of adventures and memories that I appreciate, but I've also just had like, you know, a million stupid conversations that went nowhere or like somebody being rude for no reason or whatever. That's just part of it. Let's bring it back to the book. Um, you've gotten some really great praise for the book. Yeah, some people have been super nice. It's really gratifying to hear from folks who've read the book who I'm not related to or friends with. So that's really <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I totally uh, concur with them. And it's it's a really great book. And I think it's a, a really great addition to the single woman genre. Um, Thank you. So where can people find the book? 
Um, most bookstores I've found or okay. online, I've been like kind of, you know, when you write a book, it's taken such a long time and I kind of was feeling almost numb to the situation because it's so overwhelming right when it happens. But every time I go into a bookstore and I see it on a table, I feel like really thrilled. It's like very exciting to my younger book nerd self. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to order it from a local bookstore, I always feel like that's the nicest thing to do, but it's available anywhere. Right. If you if you have to order it from Amazon because of accessibility issues, no judgment. But <laughs> if, you, if you can't go to a local bookstore, support yeah. a local bookstore. And yeah, let us know where people can find you. Well, I'm on Twitter at a Lutkin, A-L-U-T-K-I-N. My Instagram handle is A-A-Lutkin. I've been getting a lot of followers there from the UK, which is interesting. I think there's so, like a really big movement in the UK. There's just like a lot of support for being single. Yeah, it's interesting to hear from folks just being like this is my situation i went through this too i'm alone i'm your age thank you for talking about it you know i think a lot of people feel really isolated in their singleness or their yeah. loneliness and it's like i wish they could all see each other you know one day one day we'll get there um yeah anywhere <laughs> else anywhere else people can find you no that's pretty much where i hang out these days okay don't come to my house <laughs> <laughs> We usually end our episodes by playing a game called Why Aren't You Married? And the rules are really, oh, really, wow. really simple. You just tell us one reason that you're not married. So, Amay. Okay. Why aren't you okay, married? <laughs> uh, the only person who ever asked me was 16 years older than me, and I was 26. So, that's a good reason. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> I think that... Um, I think in the, the monarchy, the rule is like you can't get married until you're like 27 or something. And I think that should just maybe oh. like maybe just be like a life rule for everybody. Yeah. Like I, don't I feel like everyone like... I know who got married under 30 is like it's not gone well. Yeah. <laughs> we're just like we're just taking too long to mature if, if you're ready at 27. I don't know. Yeah. I think you just need that time to explore, find out who you actually are. I think a lot of people who don't get married in the, that age range don't get married because at a certain point they really you know like you get married because you haven't really figured a lot of stuff out and you decide to cling to this thing and it can work out for sure and there are people who are oh, happy yeah. who have worked it out but I think a lot of times if you gave yourself more time to reflect on it and grow and do other things you just would not do it <laughs> I yes <laughs> I agree I am glad that any close call I had with marriage at an early age did not materialize I'm very grateful yeah. for that I am not married because I am currently in a relationship with myself, and uh, it's it's just getting good, and I want to see where this goes. So I don't know. Well, that congratulations, I... you, you and you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I joke, but like seriously, it's just it's been just so much more gratifying to date myself and work on myself and and get to know myself better than it has and yeah. any of these other relationships that I've had and not to say that I didn't have you know good times or real connections with these people but it's been really good with with myself and having my own relationship and and working on myself yeah it's special to be able to do that and a lot of people you know get kind of swept up in other things without ever really having the time for it I got a, an email from a woman a couple of days ago who says she's 73 and she wrote to me that she got married at 18 so she moved from her dad's house to her husband's house and she was like you know i've spent i have never had a day where i haven't had to like take care of somebody or clean something or do something for somebody else a spouse or a child and like 
I, you know, it's great. You do you. Marriage isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I hope that you take a vacation and like go by yourself right? somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like you deserve it. Yeah. I mean, 73, you're still, you're still kicking. You should go and enjoy yeah. yourself. Some solo travel is in this woman's future. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> she also said her daughter's 43 and unmarried and likes her life a lot. So I was like, great. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for writing the book. I thoroughly well, enjoyed it. Thank you for reading it. and sharing it. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back on the podcast. Keep in touch. Okay, I will. Bye. Bye. <laughs>